Chapter thirty one of the Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barbara Dirksen. The Frozen Pirate by W. Clark Russell. Chapter thirty one. The End. I should require to write to the length of this book over again, to do full justice by description, to the difficulties and anxieties of the days that now followed. If it had not been thick weather all the time, I do not know how I should have fared, I am sure. I was between two fires, so to say. On the one side the French cruisers and privateers, and on the other side the ships of my own country— and particularly the revenue-cutters and the sloops and the like cruising after the smugglers as i knew that my relative could not be with me under four days i steered out of sight of land into the middle of the channel betwixt beachy head and the cn coast and there dodged about under very small canvas heartily grateful for the haze that shrouded the sea to within a mile of me I scarcely closed my eyes in sleep, and though my worries were now of a very different kind from those which had racked me on the ice, they were, in their way, to the full as tormenting. Every sail that loomed in the dinginess filled me with alarm. Several ships passed me close, and I could scarce breathe till they were out of sight. Indeed, I lay skulking out upon that sea as if I was some common thief broken loose from jail. However, it pleased heaven that I should manage to keep out of sight of those whom I most strenuously desired not to see, and the afternoon of the fourth day found the Boca lying off Beachy Head, and I peering over the rail with a haggard face at the dark shadow of the land. It had been blowing and snowing all day. The seas ran short and spitefully. It was a dismal December afternoon, and the more sensibly disgusting to us who were fresh from several weeks of the balm and glory of the tropics, and yet I would not have exchanged it for a clear fine day for all that I was like to be worth. It was the most reasonable thing in the world that a vessel should be hove to in such sombre weather, and so I was under no concern that our posture in this respect would excite suspicion should we be descried the hours stole away one by one now and again a little coaster would pass some hoy bound west a sloop for the thames a lugger on some unguessable mission all small ships oozing dark and damp out of the snow and mist and passing silently i kept the land close aboard to be out of the way of the bigger craft and held the vessel in the wind till it was necessary to reach to our station the three of us were mighty pensive and eager staring incessantly with all our eyes but it looked as if we were not to expect anything that day when the night put its darkness into the weather then as i foresaw a serious danger if the wind shifted into the south and as i could not obtain a glimpse of a shore light i resolved to bring up and ride till dawn long ago we got the schooner's old anchors at the catheads and the cables bent so lowering the mainsail and hauling down the stay foresail we let fall the starboard anchor and the ship came to a stand 
I put the lead over the side that we might know if she dragged, hung a lantern on the forestay, and one on either quarter that our presence might be marked by my relative should he be out in quest of us, and went below, leaving Cromwell to keep the lookout. I was extremely fretful and anxious, and had no patience to talk with Billy Pitt. There were too many risks, too many vague chances in this exploit to render contemplation of it tolerable. Suppose my relative should be dead. Suppose Wilkinson should be robbed of his money. Fall to the cutting of capers, as a sailor newly delivered to the pleasures of the land with ten guineas in his pocket. Get locked up for breaking the peace. Blab of us in his cups and start the customs on our trail. There was no end to such conjectures and I made myself so melancholy that I was fool enough to think that the treasure was no better than a curse, and that on the whole I was better off on the ice than here with the anchor in English ground and my native soil within gunshot. I was up and about till midnight, and then, being in the cabin and exhausted, I fell asleep across the table, and in that posture lay as one dead." Someone dragging at my arm with very little tenderness awoke me. I was in the midst of a dream of the schooner, having been boarded by a party of French privateersmen, with Tassard at their head, and the roughness with which I was aroused was exactly calculated to extend into my waking the horror and grief of my sleep. I instantly sprang to my feet and saw Washington Cromwell. Massa Rodney, he bawled, Massa Rodney, de gents longside, him and Wilkinson, yes, by de good lord, dey's both dare, dey hail me and I answer, and say, who are you, and dey say, are you de Boca, well, I am, I say, and dey say, I had stood stupidly staring at him, but my full understanding coming to me on a sudden, I jumped to the ladder and darted on deck. I heard voices over the starboard side and ran there. It was not so dark but that I could see the outline of a deal lugger. Whilst I was peering, the voice of my man Wilkinson cried out, On deck there, Cromwell, Billy, where's Mr. Rodney? Here I am, cried I. My God, Paul, exclaimed the voice of Mr. Mason, this encounter is fortunate indeed. I shouted to the negroes to show a light, and in a few minutes Mr. Mason, Wilkinson, and a couple of deal boatmen came over the side. I grasped my relative by both hands. I had not seen him for four years. "'This is good of you indeed,' I cried. "'But you must be perished with the cold of that open boat. Come below at once. Come, Wilkinson, and you, man, there is a fire in the cook-room and a drink to warm us.' and down I bundled in the wildest condition of excitement, followed by Mason and the others. My relative was warmly clad, and did not seem to suffer from the cold. He took me by the hand and brought me to the lanthorn light, and stood viewing me. "'Eh,' said he, "'you are your old self. A bit worried-looking, but that'll pass. Stout and burnt. Odd's heart!' Paul, if you have passed through the experiences Wilkinson has given me a sketch of, we must have your life, man, we must have your life, for the booksellers. Well, I need not detain you by reciting all the civilities and congratulations which he and I exchanged. 
he and wilkinson had arrived at deal at three o'clock that afternoon and after a hurried meal had hired a lugger and started at once for beachy head it was now three o'clock in the morning and what i may consider a truly extraordinary circumstance is that they had sailed as true a course for the schooner as if she had lain plain to the gaze at the very start that since the night had drawn down they had met no vessel of any kind or description until they came up to us that in all probability they would have run stem on into us if they had not seen our lights and that their seeing our lights had caused them to hail us their ship ahoy being instantly answered by cromwell well said i there are stranger things to tell of than this even now wilkinson and you billy and cromwell get us a good supper and mix a proper bowl how many more of you are in the lugger four sir says one of the boatmen then fetch as many as may safely leave the boat said i billy get candles and make a good light here throw on coal boys there's enough to carry us home i saw mason gazing curiously about him tis like a tale out of the arabian nights paul he exclaimed eh said i but written in better prose and no hint of enchantment anywhere but thank god you are come i have passed a dismal time of expectation i promise you i added softly i have something secret we will sup first man i shall amaze you we must talk apart presently he bowed his head three more boatmen arrived giving us the company of five of them soon there was a hearty sound of frying and a smell of good things upon the air pitt put plates and glasses upon the cabin table two great bowls of punch were brewed and in a little time we had all fallen too i whispered wilkinson who sat next to me these boatmen know nothing of our business i shall have to take mr mason apart and arrange with him these fellows may not be fit for our service let no hint escape you right sir said he this i said to disarm his suspicions should he see me talking alone with mr mason he entertained us with an account of his excursion to london and then partly to appease the profound curiosity of the boatmen and partly to save time when i should come to confer with my relative i gave them the story of my shipwreck and told how i had met with the schooner and how i had managed to escape with her and now mason said i whilst our friends here empty these bowls come you with me to the cook-room and with that we quitted the cabin do you mean to tell me paul was the first question my relative asked that this vessel was on the ice eight and forty years yes i replied surely you dream i think not what have we been eating and drinking is that forty-eight years old too ay and older well such a thing shall make me credulous enough to duck old women for witches but what brandy what brandy never had spirits such a bouquet every pint is worth its weight in guineas to a rich man to think of deal boatmen and niggers swilling such nectar mason said i speaking low give me now your attention in the run of this schooner are ten chests loaded with money bars of silver and gold and jewelry this 
vessel was a pirate and her people valued their booty at ninety to a hundred thousand pounds his jaw fell he stared as if he knew not whether it was he or i that was mad here is the evidence that i speak the truth said i a little sample only but look at it and i put the pirate captain's watch into his hand he eyed it as though he discredited the intelligence of his sight turned it about and returned it to me with a faint heaven preserve me then he said still faintly you found some of the pirates alive no who told you that the people of the vessel valued their plunder at that amount i answered by giving him the story of the recovery of the frenchman he listened with a gaze of consternation i saw how it was he believed my sufferings had affected my reason there was only one way to settle his mind i took a lanthorn and asked him to follow me as we passed through the cabin i whispered wilkinson that i meant to show my relative the lading below and bade him keep the deal men about him i had the keys of the chest in my pocket lifting the after hatch we entered the lazarette and mason gazed about him with astonishment but i was in too great a hurry to return to suffer him idly stand and stare i opened the second hatch and descended into the run and crawling to the jewel chest opened it removed a few of the small arms and bade him look for himself incredible incredible he cried is it possible is it possible well to be sure and for some moments he could find no more to say so amazed and confounded was he i quickly showed him the gold and silver ingots and then returned the firearms and locked the chests these i said emphatically pointing to the chests have been my difficulty not the lading though there is value there too my crew knew nothing of these chests of their value i mean they believe them to be cases of small arms how am i to get them ashore if i tell the truth these will be seized as piratical plunder if i equivocate i may tumble into a pit of difficulties i durst not carry them to the thames the river swarms with thieves and custom-house people i am terrified to linger here lest i be boarded and the booty discovered there is but one plan i think we must hire some deal smugglers to run these chests and the cargo for us the boat now alongside might serve and i don't doubt the men are to be had at their own price my relative had regained his wits which the sight of the treasure had temporarily scattered and surveyed me thoughtfully whilst i spoke and then said let us return to the fire i think i have a better scheme than yours the men still sat around the table talking some liquor yet lay in one of the bowls and the fellows were happy enough i smiled at wilkinson as i passed that he might suppose our inspection below very satisfactory and i saw him look meaningly and pleasantly at washington cromwell who sat with a laced hat on his head paul said mason sitting down and folding his arms your smuggling plan will not do it would be the height of madness to trust those chests to the risk of running and to the honesty of the rogues engaged in that business what is to be done tell me your lading said he i gave it to him as accurately as i could 
Why, he exclaimed, a single boat would take a long time to discharge ye. Observe the perils. Several boats would mean a large number of men. They would eat you up. They would demand so much you would have nothing left. And suppose they opened the chests. No, your scheme is worthless. What's to do, then, in God's name? I'll tell you, he exclaimed, smiling with the complacency of a man who is master of a great fancy. I shall sail to Dover at once. Tis now a quarter past four. Give me twelve hours to make Dover. I shall post straight to London, and be there by the early morning. Now, Paul, attend you to this. Today is Wednesday. By tomorrow night you must contrive to bring your ship to an anchor off Barking Level. The Thames, I cried. He nodded. I looked at him anxiously. He leaned to me, putting his hand on my leg. I own a lighter, said he. She will be alongside of you at dusk. I have people of my own whom I can trust. The lighter will empty your hold and convey the lading to a ship chartered by me, arrived from the Black Sea on Sunday and lying in the pool. The stuff can be sold from that ship as it is. But the chests, the chests, Mason. They shall be lowered into another boat and taken ashore and put into a wagon that will be in waiting, I in it and driven to my home. I clapped him on the shoulder in a transport. Nobly schemed indeed, I cried. But we have nothing to fear from the customs people? No, not low down the river and at dark. You bring up for convenience, do you see? Mind it is dark when you anchor. A lighter and boat shall be awaiting you. It is down the river, you know, that all the lumpers drop with the lighters they go adrift in from ship's sides. There's more safety in smuggling over Thames mud than on this coast shingle. One more thought. You say that Wilkinson believes the chests hold small arms? Yes. Then account to him for sending the chests away separately by saying that I have found a purchaser and that they are going to him direct. You have your cue, you see all. All. Let me hurry then, Paul. That brandy should fetch you half a guinea a pint. You are in luck's way, Paul. See that you bring your ship along safely. Till tomorrow night. He clasped and wrung my hand and ran into the cabin. Now, lads, off with us, he cried. Off to Dover. Put me ashore there smartly and you shall find your account. Off now. Time presses. Five minutes afterwards, the boat was gone. When fortune falls in love with a man, she makes him a bounteous mistress. Everything fell out as I could have desired. We got our anchor at five, and by daybreak were off Hastings jogging quietly along towards London River, the weather conveniently obscure, the wind south, and forty hours before us to do the run-in. I exactly explained my relative's scheme to Wilkinson and the others, who declared themselves perfectly satisfied. Wilkinson adding that though he had not objected to the deal-smuggling project, he throughout considered the risk too heavy to adventure. I told them that Mr. Mason believed he could immediately find a purchaser for the small arms, in which case they would have to be sent privately ashore, and to give a proper colour to this ruse, I made them pack away all the remaining weapons in the arms-room and carry them to the run ready to be taken with the other chests. Once fairly round the forelands, half my anxieties fell from me. 
there was no longer the French cruiser or privateer to be feared, and however wonderingly the people of my own country's vessels might stare at the uncommon figure of my schooner, they could find no excuse to board us. Besides, as I have said, I was greatly helped by the weather, which continuing hazy, though happily never so thick as to oblige me to stop, delivered me to the sight of only such vessels as passed close, and offered me as a mere smudge to the shore. We arrived off Barking Level on the Thursday night, and dropped anchor close to a lighter that lay there, with a large boat hanging by her. It was then very dark. The first person who came on board was Mason. He was followed by several men, one of whom he introduced to me as his head clerk, who would see to the unloading of the schooner and to the transshipment of the goods to the ship in the pool. He informed me there was a covered van waiting on shore, and telling Wilkinson that the small arms had been disposed of and that Mr. Mason would hand over the proceeds on our calling at his office, I went with a party of my relative's men into the run and presently had the whole of the chests in the boat. Mason went with her. Then, as she disappeared in the darkness, but not till then, did I draw the first easy breath I had fetched since the hour of the collision of the Laughing Mary with the iceberg. A sob shook me. I had gone through much. Many wonderful things had happened to me. I had been delivered from such perils that the mere recollection of them will stir my hair, though it is years since. My duty I knew, and I discharged it by withdrawing to my cabin, and kneeling with humble and grateful heart before the throne of that being to whom I owed everything. End of chapter 31 Recording by Barbara Dirksen Come visit me at lalalime.blogspot.com